It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA, Agent Ether, Agent Kruger, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out our Facebook group, AlienConPod. This week's episode, The Mysterious Heist of D.B. Dan Cooper. Alright, this is a good one. It's kind of a strange case because... Nobody knows really what happened. Did he make it? Did he not make it? I'm assuming mm-hmm. most people have probably heard of this case, but yeah, if, yeah. if you haven't, it's a fun one. And for me, the fun is like, it's kind of like a Robin Hood story for a lot of people. And mm. the real mystery is, did he actually get away with it or did he not? That nobody really knows for sure, but yeah. we'll get to that. Well, the kids yeah, who are here things- today are convinced. We took a poll, and they all think that he made it. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's like one of the things that always stood out uh, the most is just, just how very popular this story is. You know, um, it definitely happened, obviously. It's not one of these, uh, you know, things that we're just like, you know, uh, theorizing on what may have happened. Well, obviously, there's going to be a lot of that, too. But we know that this event definitely happened. Somebody did this. We just don't know who the heck did it, you know, and it's such a famous story and we still don't know really. I mean, there, there are some, some pretty convincing uh, theories I think out there of, of who it may be. And we'll get to that obviously, but yeah, th- this is a fun one. This is a real cool one. The fun thing is there were tons of skyjackings at this time. And this is the only one where we don't know the identity of the hijacker. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. he's never been caught. Yeah. This is one. That's one thing that really surprised me for this case is I'd seen this on TV before and stuff, but I didn't really know that much about it in depth. But when Mm -hmm. I started looking into it, I guess at the time, there were a ton of similar cases of skyjackings. That was, I guess, you know, some people were into train sets. Some people were into hijacking airplanes at the time. It was like the modern (laughs) stagecoach. Yeah, it was pretty common back then, at least compared to how it is now. I mean, the security was so lax back then. There was no... I mean, you just had your plane ticket, and that's all you needed. Right. So nobody Mm -hmm. was checking anything on the luggage. Not even identification. Yeah, Yeah. and and apparently Dan Cooper paid about 25 cents for his plane ticket back in the day, man. Inflation is crazy. It might not have been... It might might have been more like, you know, 50 bucks, but, you know, to me, it seems like 25 (laughs) cents. (laughs) <laughs> I think it was twenty. Yeah, I would say like the most plausible way to compare. I mean, I don't know. I I'm gonna start over there. But uh, Richard McCoy Jr. You know, he was the one that pulled it off. So that's why it's so plausible in my head that DB could have done the same thing, or if not, that could be DB himself as Richard McCoy. You know? Yeah, and the I real McCoy. We'll get to that later, I'm sure. But he's <laughs> one of the foremost uh, possibilities of as to who could have actually been DB Cooper. And reading up on them, I think he's one of the more likely suspects, in my opinion. Oh, there, I agree with that. There's a couple mm-hmm. of them. I doubt we'll get yeah, to all of the, them. But. Oh, yeah. I, I, there's some doozies. I mean, there's definitely like the, you know, the transgender one, too. I, I'm, I'm sure you got to that. Yeah. It's, I, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to touch that one by today's <laughs> standards because 
I might use the wrong pronoun or something, and then we'll get the show canceled. It you is know? a colorful <laughs> suspect, that's for sure. Or maybe I'll just no let somebody comment. else. Yeah, I'll let somebody else tackle that one. Maybe I'm ready to handle it. All right, I think. Yeah, actually, Agent <laughs> Ether can do it because she's a woman, so she should be safe. <laughs> she can't get canceled. Sex yet. doesn't matter. What do you mean? Just kidding. <laughs> Equal rights. So she's not a Karen, and she's a woman, so it's a lot safer for her to talk about that stuff. But anyways. One thing that really surprised me about this case, too, that we sort of hinted at just a little bit ago, this is the only, not just in the United States, but as far as I could find, it's actually the only internationally unsolved, like, sky piracy case. Which I prefer that term, sky piracy. Sky pirate, yeah. Sky like pirates. It. Yeah, it's a lot more fun than hijacking. Arr, yeah. <laughs> what Do sky pirates have a different accent? You know, they would have to, right? I don't know. I mean, it'd have to be some somewhat of the uh, traditional pirate accent, I would hope. Yeah. I would agree. Maybe a little you know? airier, you know? I don't know what that would sound like. <laughs> I'm not going to try it. A little hypoxic yeah. and a little drunk. <laughs> Instead of ar har har maybe like ar har har Maybe? I don't know. Err, err, All I'm going to end up doing is just like adding like an Irish uh, flair to it. <laughs> yeah. har <laughs> har People have, hey, commented, people have commented on our accents, and these comments were not favorable. Really? Well, the oh. comments I saw were, your accents are really good. Please keep doing them. <laughs> I don't think that's true. <laughs> I might have written that particular review, but, you know. I think my accent was the best. That's what they were trying to say. Oh, wait, dickhead. Could be. Could be. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into some of the particulars of the case. I'm going to go over just the very basic scenario, and then we'll get into some more details after that. So we're talking about the D.B. Cooper, actually the Dan Cooper heist. The The name D.B. Cooper was coined by a journalist. I guess they had a deadline, and they just sort of put that out there, and it was completely wrong. Nobody ever went by D.B. Cooper in this case. It was just you know a mistake. The real name, so Dan Cooper which we're assuming by we, I mean the FBI and whoever, but they assume it's an alias used by this guy when he bought his plane ticket. He went by Dan Cooper. And what happened was on November 24th, 1971, Dan Cooper bought a one-way ticket with cash on Northwest Orient Airlines flight number 305 from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. He was supposedly a man in his mid-40s, some descriptions went as late as like the mid 50s, which is quite a wide range there. But I, I guess with witnesses in a very panicked environment where they're in fear of their lives, I can imagine them having different perceptions. So maybe that's all it is to it. Anyways, he was dressed in a business suit with a white shirt and a black tie. And the tie had a tie clip onto it, which is an important detail because the tie clip was put on the way a left-handed person would do it. And that's in with a greater lack of evidence. Sometimes all you have to go on is, well, he was probably left-handed. That's kind of the case we're looking at here. There's not a whole lot of evidence to go on on this one, but we do suspect he was left-handed because of the tie clip. He, when the airplane was waiting to take off, he ordered a bourbon and soda and the flight took off at about 2.50 PM on November 24th. Just after 3 p.m., he handed a note, a handwritten note that was written in like a Sharpie, to the stewardess, Florence Schaffner. She didn't look at the note, assuming it was probably like a booty call phone number or something. 
she just kind of put it in her purse. And then Cooper saw that she did that. And she, he whispered to her, said, hey, you should look at that note. I got a bomb. So she looked at the note and the note said that there was a bomb in the briefcase and that he wanted her to sit with him. So she did. She sat next to him and he showed her, he had an attache case with him and he showed her inside of the case and she described it as eight red cylinders, four on top and four on bottom, like stacked. So two by four kind of a thing. And they were connected with wires to a battery. And based on the descriptions, it looked like kind of like a mess of wires or something. It wasn't, you know, too organized looking, but who knows? There are no surviving pictures that I am aware of, unfortunately. So he showed her this briefly and then closed the case again. And he told her that he that he, um, he had her write a message for the captain. And the message demanded four parachutes and $200,000 in cash money. And the, the way he demanded the cash money was in, uh, what was it, like um, non-negotiable American money or something? We'll get to that later. It's, a, it's an important thing. Wasn't it all $20 bills, I think? Yeah, it was all $20 bills. So it was about 10,000, well, not about, it was exactly 10,000 bills. 10,000 mm-hmm. bills, guys. Oh, man. That's I'm getting, all. I'm getting excited just thinking about that. <laughs> or it was about 22 pounds just for the cash. And it was probably a little bit more because they had to package it with like, you know, they had to wrap it up with rubber bands and put it in a bag or something. So maybe it was like, I don't know, 25 pounds or something. Anyways, that's a lot of money, dude. And it's important to the case because you have to imagine when he's parachuting out of the plane, would that weight be significant? Would it not? We'll get to that later, though. So he was while they were in the air, the plane circled for about two hours near the destination to give the authorities time to get their parachutes and money, because I'm guessing most police departments don't just have a ready supply of parachutes and $200,000 of cash at the time. That was more like 1.5 million. So that's kind of a lot of money to have Mm -hmm. sitting around. Yeah. The flight attendant, Tina Mucklau said that she, that uh, during, so during the two hours, he, he was talking with people. He appeared really calm and relaxed. He was very polite and he was well-spoken. Which because of the bourbon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it must have been, right? He actually yeah, supposedly, uh, the stewardess said he ordered a second bourbon and paid for it and tried to tip her. But uh, I guess she oh. didn't accept the tip or something. But Hey, he's a class yeah. act. There's nothing wrong yeah. with that. I was actually watching one of her interviews and she was <laughs> describing him as cordial a bit uh, impatient sometimes, but other than that, not very, um, like, not violent, not, you know, not out of sorts, if you will. But um, yeah. she lit a couple of his cigarettes and stuff like that. And, I mean, she, her, her herself has stated that she wanted to try to keep the, you know, the situation calm. And I, I do give her credit for that and the entire crew, you know, they really did handle their shit. Well, well, my understanding is yeah. nobody, none of the passengers actually knew that the plane was nope, being hijacked. Not until they got right. off. The, not until they Which got off. Which I thought off, was too. really funny. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially since the rest of the world knew the plane was being hijacked because on other airlines, the captains were playing the radio mm-hmm. transmissions for the entertainment of their passengers. Yeah. <laughs> I kid you not. 
Ah, the golden age of America when a woman could light a man's cigarette if she wanted to willingly, you know, by her own. You know, she didn't have to, but if she wanted to. And you could listen to hijackings for entertainment. <laughs> Good times, people. Good yeah, times. Those, are the, those were on the days if there was a chase like on the uh, news or something like that. Now, I, I don't think they had too many uh, news helicopters back in those days, if any. But, you know, if they did, they probably wouldn't be pulling away from a uh, a chase that stopped and somebody, you know, on the freeway about to get shot or something, you know? Yeah. I'd say the last great chase was OJ. <laughs> well, that so? was the <laughs> great chase. You can't say last. Oh, yeah. I, I would say the. Uh, I would say the last because nobody's been glued to their TV since another, like, I mean, you'll see the occasional, uh, or the, you know, here and there, there'll be like a motorcycle hauling ass or somebody doing something, but Nothing will ever repeat a giant or a white Bronco being driven by the juice. Well, it was, mm-hmm. I mean, that was OJ, man. If maybe our I younger remember watching audience that on is, TV as it's happening. Yeah. Maybe our, our younger audience may be unfamiliar, but back in the day, man, OJ was the shit. He was, he was as big as big Dude. gets, you know? I didn't Dude, know he who was he in, was. He was in a, he was a naked <laughs> gun. He was a naked gun with Leslie Nielsen. Come on. You know, I had no idea. What was going on when I was watching that? It was just another car chase. It was definitely a blur for a bit, but <laughs> well, Agent Ether was uh, was raised under a rock, apparently. So you <laughs> have to forgive true. her for that. It's not her fault. <laughs> <laughs> but for everybody else who saw the Naked Gun movies or was not under a rock, OJ was a pretty big deal. But anyways, back to the case. Uh, this to me was actually one of the more important details that is not often talked about, but the fact that he was so calm during this incident, I mean, just put yourself in that place. Like, if somebody dared me to go ding-dong ditch my neighbor's house right now, I'd be crapping my pants, let alone hijacking an airplane. Hijacking an airplane, people. I think that Mm -hmm. your average person, you take 10,000 people of average people, you have them hijack an airplane, None of them are going to be calm doing it. Like out of 10,000 people, well, zero, right? And they're, this, they're also not going to have the skills to do it either. This is an exceptional individual we're talking about here. I don't know what that means specifically, but this is one detail that I really caught my attention because I don't think that there are very many people, no matter how much you practice for it, no matter how much you go over it in your own mind, hijacking an airplane and being really calm and just sitting there sipping your bourbon and smoking cigarettes or cigars or whatever it was. I just, that's just a detail that really stuck out to me because I just can't imagine very many people being able to do that. Well, he he gained a a small cult following and people were, you know, be as cool as D.B. Cooper. You know, I mean, like there was people that, you know, actually respected the fact that he didn't try to endanger anyone else's lives like directly, but... You know, what What if it didn't go as smoothly? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We we do not praise the people that, you know, hurt other people, of course. But, you know, it's just, it could have gone a whole other way. It's just, there's so much luck and, you know. I'm not like uh, necessarily praising him or saying it's good to be no, like not a criminal. No, not either. But what I'm saying is, is that, like, I don't, th- I don't think that, yeah, anyways. So, uh, just to sort of underline that point. When uh, when they landed in Seattle, he offered to request meals to the fr- flight crew. He's like, "Hey, you guys hungry? I can get you guys some food." Like, <laughs> I mean, just <laughs> if if you're a you criminal, guys want something out of this too? 
<laughs> yeah, like, just picture like you're a criminal robbing a bank and you got all these hostages there. Are you going to be so calm that you're going to say to the bank manager and the employees or whatever, hey, you guys hungry? I can get them to bring us some Taco Bell or some, you know, if you're hungry. Like, no, <laughs> like that would not be on my radar. I'd, I would just be so scared shitless myself <laughs> during that crime that it wouldn't even occur to me that anybody would be hungry. It's just, it's so crazy to me just how calm this guy was. Yeah, and we mentioned that there were a lot of hijackings at this time, and so the FAA developed psychological profiles for the hijackers, and they would brief airport officials on what to look for. And obviously, they weren't looking for this guy. That's how calm he was. No. Smooth operator. Yeah. That's right. That's what this guy was. Yeah, so anyways, when they landed the plane in Seattle, he let the pass. there were 36 passengers, he let all of them go, and he got the parachutes and the money, and while the plane was being refueled, he worked with the flight crew to develop a flight plan. He told them to just fly south towards Mexico City, and he, he had some exact specifications of how he wanted that achieved. He said he wanted them to do it at the minimum possible speed, and he wanted it at a maximum of 10,000 feet. And he wanted them to lower the wing flaps at 15 degrees. Because with them lowered at 15 degrees, you can see that from inside the airplane. And so he wouldn't actually have to go into the cockpit to regulate that, right? It, which is, it's a very interesting detail because that's, that's... That's thinking ahead. Yeah, and that 15 degrees would have been specific to that airplane. Every airplane is going to have a different design, which, by the uh -huh. way, I think we're talking, I don't think we mentioned, it was a, seven, a Boeing 727. So the, the 727 would be 15 degrees. A different airplane would be a different uh, wing flap degree. It might be 10, it might be 20, who knows. Mm -hmm. But you'd have to look it up for that specific thing. So that indicate he knew a lot about this specific airplane maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that but this guy was really well prepared for this well, this is the common airplane this is the carrier at the time right yeah but it based on his knowledge and what he asked for it does appear that he knew specific information about this airplane because there were just because this was a common airplane doesn't mean that it was the was not the only one flying around there were a lot of airplanes as there are today right but anyways mm -hmm. He also asked that the landing gear remain down during flight, and he wanted the cabin to remain unpressurized. So this guy had some very specific requests before they even took off. The flight crew told him that given his requests, the range of the aircraft would only be about a thousand miles. So they said they would have to be refueled before they got to Mexico City. D.B. Cooper or, you know, Cooper or, you know, Don or Dan or however you want to call him, uh, they, they kind of discussed it and he came up with, um, they said, okay, we're going to have to refuel. Here's our options. And he decided to refuel at Reno, Nevada. This is important later on. Maybe we'll get to it, hopefully. But anyways, after they made that decision and they got finished refueling, they took off. And he wanted them to take off with the rear exit door open and the staircase extended. They said that we can't do that, it won't be safe. He said that it will be safe, but because the flight crew was insisting that it wouldn't be safe, he said, all right, go ahead and take off anyways, I'll just let it out in the air. Which is another important detail, because your average civilian would not know that you could actually deploy that staircase in the air. 
So there's, mm-hmm. you know, just another detail of just how meticulously planned this case was. So he anyways, had some difficulties with that staircase, though, right? I mean, you mentioned that. I'm sorry if you didn't. He had, uh, and it was kind of interesting to compare the two cases uh, with, you know, like that one gentleman that we mentioned, um, uh, Richard McCoy. I'll yeah. bring that up later. We might talk a little bit. I think Agent Ether may have some details about the stairs, but we'll wait for that until a little bit later. So the plane took off again at 7.40 from Seattle, 7.40 p.m. in the afternoon. Everyone had left the plane except for the captain, one of the stewardesses or uh, flight attendants, the um, Mucklau, and the first officer, um, Radchak, and the flight engineer, Anderson. The plane uh, was actually followed by two F-106 fighters who kept out of view of somebody who, like Cooper, um, they, they flew above and below into the aft of the airplane, so you wouldn't have been able to see them from the windows or from looking directly out the back of the airplane. So they're trying to kind of stay out of sight to not freak them out. But they they basically tailed them the whole time. Maybe they were worried that, you know, if the plane would crash into something or maybe they were just, um, I don't know what it, what their objective was, but they were there the whole time. Cooper told Mucklau to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and to stay there with the door closed after takeoff. Around 8 p.m., the, he opened the, um, the rear door of the airplane, which is where there's a rear door and then a staircase drops out of that door. He opened that around 8 p.m., and there, we're not 100% sure when he jumped out of the airplane but our best guess is at 8.13 p.m., the tail section had a large upward movement, and they think that that could have been Cooper jumping out. And the reason they think this is because the, the way the stairs work is it's kind of like a spring-loaded kind of a deal, and it kind of bounces around if it's not locked into place. So in the air, with the airstream coming by at 10,000 feet at about 170 knots, the Stairs are not going to really come down by themselves all that well. So what happened was you have D.B. Cooper with all of the stuff he's carrying, which is two parachutes and the money and, um, you know, other miscellaneous things. Probably they estimate it was somewhere in the ballpark of 200 pounds. That's going to cause the stairs to go down. And then once he jumps up, they're going to go back up like they're spring loaded and they did an experiment using like a um, like a sled or something that they shoved off of a 727 in midair, and it replicated that this bump that the tail section had at 813. So we don't know for sure, but the best evidence suggests that he jumped out of the plane at 813 p.m. So if that's true, it kind of limits where he could have jumped out, you know, the search area if you're going to try to look at him. And this this time, the plane was over the Lewis River in southwest Washington, and it was it's north of it's just near the border north of Portland. So after that, the crew was able to land the plane safely in Reno, Nevada, at about 10:15 p.m. DB Cooper himself was never seen or heard from ever again. The FBI looked at over 800 suspects. They eliminated eventually all but about two dozen of them and they followed up on thousands and thousands of leads. After the event, the authorities searched on foot with helicopters with boats on the river, 
They checked uh, on, you know, knocking on doors with some of like the farmhouses in the area, and they never found any trace of him or the parachutes or anything else. Like not a single trace was ever found of this guy, which is kind of surprising considering the extent of the search efforts. The FBI did their own aerial search using planes and helicopters. They searched the entire flight path of the 727. They did end up seeing some broken treetops and some plastic and some debris, but none of it was ever connected to this particular case, unfortunately. In 1972, after the spring thaw, the FBI, aided by 200 Army soldiers, Air Force people, National Guardsmen, civilian volunteers, and some other miscellaneous people, did a ground search for 18 days in March and 18 more days in April, and they didn't find anything. A marine salvage firm used a submarine to search Lake Merwin in the area, which is about 200 feet deep, and they didn't find anything. Uh, That's just a couple of highlights, but there was a lot more search efforts that I just kind of glossed over there. Um, by some estimates, this was maybe the biggest search, maybe the biggest search effort ever in the history of the United States, and they didn't find anything. They found like the hey, like that movie. We ain't found shit. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, spaceballs comb yeah. the desert. Yeah, exactly. Comb the desert. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's pretty much what they found is shit. Uh, Another scene that might not be necessarily acceptable today. Yeah, I don't know if that would be because the thing is, is that was that was actually well, you no, know, it was it was made by Mel Brooks, so uh, in uh, my opinion, he gets a pass everywhere. You know, yeah, he gets a pass. But also that that actor, it, it wasn't like. Well, anyways, well, let's not get onto that tangent. <laughs> anyways, I agree. A really good movie. I suggest everybody go watch it if you haven't seen that yeah. movie already. What the hell's wrong with you? There's so but, many quotable moments. You idiots. You caught their stunt doubles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Oh man, the movie. <laughs> I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. It's like it's so stupid, but so funny. <laughs> my, you know, now that we're on the tangent, I got to say my favorite moment in that movie ever since I've been a kid and I saw this, that guy, I forget the guy's actor. You know who I'm talking about. He was in the police academy, which shame on my parents for letting me watch the police academy as a child because Definitely not <laughs> child appropriate, you know. <laughs> no, Bobcat Gopher back in those days, no? Well, if you haven't seen the movie, just as an example, one of many, many examples of this movie, at the near the end of the movie, I think, the uh the the guy who was it was um uh, was that 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 guy who's in all those national lampoon movies, I think. Anyways, the police commissioner is oh, giving I thought- He's I thought get, I thought you're gonna at first I thought you're gonna uh, reference uh, Michael Winslow the the guy of uh, a million voices or whatever the hell or noises or yeah yeah no yeah that's definitely who I'm talking about I forgot his name oh but I'm talking oh, yeah, about yeah. no that's Michael Winslow man yeah I'm talking about why the Police Academy movie is the the first one why it was so inappropriate for children just one oh. example is at the end of the movie the commissioner guy or whoever is giving a speech to the graduates and somebody as a gag had hired a prostitute to be under the podium. Oh and yeah. <laughs> as a child, I had no idea what was going on. He's just giving a speech and making funny noises. But what's really happening in the movie is the prostitute is giving him a blow job while he's trying to give a speech. Right. So mm-hmm. that's the kind of movie it is. Children should not be watching it even today. You know, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. bit is inappropriate, but anyways, yeah. In Spaceballs, 
that comedian is like, he makes all those noises, he, you know, they're talking about jamming the radar and stuff. I've always oh, been yeah. a fan of that guy. It just, uh, in mo- I haven't actually seen any of his standup, but in movies, I just can't believe the sound effects he does. He's, it blows my little mind. But, uh, it it wasps my fragile little mind. Yeah. I've seen some of his standup. His standup's actually pretty solid. Yeah. It's not like, like, uh, I mean, it's, uh, if you like, like, a uh, dirty stand up, like, it, like, really, like, you know, like, like, a hard hitting stuff or whatever, people that don't hold back at all, like, his, his stuff is a little bit more family friendly or a lot more, really, but it's still good, good humor, you know? I just, I just trip out on all those sounds he can make. It's just, it doesn't seem real. I've, he's the only per, I, I, I know that there's a lot of other people out there that are talented in this realm, but I ain't never seen anybody on his level before. You yeah. Know, it's, that's, it's, it's amazing that you could be so impressive by just making different noises, you know? Yeah. If, <laughs> if he had that level of skill, like in anything else, like sports or business or whatever, then he'd be uh-huh. like Bill Gates or something. That's how good he had it. Yeah. How good he is at making those sounds. <laughs> right. But all right, where were we? Let's get back to the case. See, I told you that's why I didn't want to go on no tangent, but Hey, you know what? It's uh, all about the tangents. Yeah. The tangents are fun. Yeah. All right, where was I? Okay, so I think I already mentioned that this is the only... Okay, we talked about the air piracy. All right, so the area he jumped out, they had a search area, but they're not 100% sure where to search because of the variables. Now, when he jumped, um, they're not 100% sure the exact location of the airplane, and they're not exactly sure when he pulled his ripcord, and they're not exactly sure what the wind was doing and stuff like that. So there's a fairly large area that, that he could have jumped out in. And, you know, it's not exact, but they did have a very extensive search area or a search effort. So still they didn't find anything, which is kind of interesting. Now the air force airplanes had been following him when he jumped out, whether it was eight o'clock or eight thirteen or eight thirty, whatever it was somewhere in that ballpark. They were definitely following at that time, but they didn't see him jump. It's not too unusual, though, because it was nighttime, it was pitch black, and he was wearing black clothes. So that that's not unusual, but it is unfortunate that they didn't see him jump. If they had seen him jump, we would have a pretty exact location on where he left the plane. But unfortunately, we don't. The parachute he was using, uh, I couldn't really be steered like a modern parachute with like the handles. You can like aim it and stuff. This parachute, it just kind of went down, and wherever the wind was blowing him, that's where he went. And he also didn't really have proper survival gear, like jackets and stuff. It was snowing and raining out. It was The weather was really bad. And that's, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but a lot of the people who think that he didn't actually make it to the ground say that the, or he didn't actually escape, say that the weather was too bad and he wouldn't have actually been able to make it out of the forest. But it turns out where he landed, it might have only been a 10-mile hike to the nearest road. Now, this is really thick forest. It wouldn't have been fun. It would have been a really bad, like nobody would have liked this hike. It would have been a really crappy hike. But at night, 10 miles to the road, I think that's doable. But we'll probably... it it definitely could be if you knew where you were, like, right? And you know, so you know exactly what direction to travel. Which yeah, it could be definitely possible. But which he definitely seemed to know where he was. But we can maybe debate on that a little bit later. Mm. So that's pretty much the basic events of the case. 
So now I guess I'll turn it over to the other agents and we can just sort of just sort of bullshit about whatever different topics come up because there's a lot to this case. Well, there, there's one thing I wanted to talk about, which I, and right. I remember hearing about this when I was younger too, but, um, I, I and I, I rediscovered it while, while the little bit of research, I'll just put out there, uh, right away. I didn't do a whole lot of research for this one because my internet was out the area that I live in. It was extremely freaking hot and windy today. <laughs> I'll say it's, a. Uh, it's 10.13 at night right now, and it's 109 degrees out. Joyful. Damn. Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, no, my internet oh, was out and shit, you know, but I did I did happen to find this paper clipping from um, Wednesday, February 13th, 1980. Kitties find tattered bills of D.B. Cooper in, um, in uh, D.B. Cooper loot and sand. That was a full uh, headline for the, uh, this article. So I, I guess some kids in, uh, in Portland... Um, they were, uh, you know, frolicking upon the, uh, the river there over yonder and, and found, you know, this, uh, eroded, uh, pile of money that had been buried in sand, but had, you know, since been, uh, I guess eroded away and, and re, uh, rediscovered because of a, a big storm or something like that, that had happened. You know, they had, uh, you know, uh, uh floodwaters come through and, and uh, uncovered this loot, I guess that had been buried. People oh, think that I- it's. Oh, sorry. I thought it was because they were digging a fire pit and they were able and was they just coincidentally. Well, I, I thought it was they were digging a fire pit. I, I could be mistaken on that, but it was bound together by like elastic bands and all that stuff and the serial yeah. numbers yeah. matched everything. Yeah, that was I heard a couple yeah, different 6, stories, but yeah, but but oh, just please, imagine sorry. though. Imagine you're you're a couple little kids, know, right? Right. And and you're just chilling by the river, and, and uh, you uncover a bunch of freaking money. You're like, wait, oh, wait a minute that's there a, now. Now, if you look at the picture of the, true. I know, right? Well, if the money was usable, like if it, you, you look at the picture of the uh, the money on the uh, news clip in there, and uh, yeah, it's not really like usable money. They're all plastered together and like eroded all over at the the uh, ends and stuff, and. It wouldn't be like a bill I would hand to anybody expecting them to Oh, accept. that's history, though. That's an NFT. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, I would definitely, uh, you know, put it in a plaque and hang it on my wall, you know? <laughs> yeah, but first you have to pay for it. In in there, uh, there was, I, went, I saw a small clip of the interview with the boy who found it, and he was about uh, 15, right? Like 14, 15? Um, he, but anyway, he, he was excited. He kept saying, well, I just can't wait to get the bills back. And I think he knew exactly what he had is that if you keep it, if he keeps it around at the age he was at, which is a young age. And, you know, nowadays that stuff can sell for a pretty penny if uh, he hasn't already got it. Yeah. When he it. got it back, he sold it at auction for $37,000. Well, he Good didn't sell him. <laughs> he didn't sell all of the bills. So. No. He got some of the bills, the insurance guys. So the the $200,000 that they gave to D.B. Cooper ultimately came from an insurance company because the airline was insured. They got some of the money, which I don't know why they wanted it. It was just a couple thousand, but whatever. I guess Mm -hmm. you got to get what you can get. The FBI kept a few of them as evidence, and then the kid got to keep some of them. The kid sold some of them at auction not all of them. He only sold a handful of the bills and he still got, I forget the number. What What did you say it was? Like 30, 37. Yeah, 37,000. Yeah, just for a few of them. Hell yeah. So he he did pretty well with a, for, for just a kid playing Hell in the yeah. sand, you know? So Some people argue that this may not actually be D.B. Cooper's money or, you know, D- Dan Cooper, Don Cooper, whatever. 
Um, but like, ah, it seems pretty damn compelling to me because it's in the area. Um, they're all twenty dollar bills, you know. And, and, and the serial numbers match the money that was the, given, though. And so it's pretty hard numbers. to dispute. So it's, it's obviously we know for a fact that it was his money because they recorded every yeah. serial number on every dollar bill or every twenty dollar bill they gave him, and the serials matched. They were in mm-hmm. the order that they were given to him. So the bundles had not been shifted around or whatever. All the serial numbers were still in the same order that they had been given to him um, yeah. during the you know hijacking. And, and so, um, the yeah, what what's up? Oh, I, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say. I mean, to me, this kind of like you know sets in stone that he, in my opinion, he made it to the ground. And oh yeah. He, he, you know, like, like, you know, everybody has all these different theories of what happened. Did he make it even to the ground alive? You know, did he, you know, fall through some trees and get damaged, you know, died on the way down somehow, whatever it was. Right. I mean, this merit, this money obviously was buried. I think so. Why? I mean, it, it, he definitely made it. I think that's why I, that's I all think, uh, I think it's definitely plausible that he could have landed and then started, you know, putting it in different spots, the cash. Like and just dispersing it a bit, and that six k is an example of like one of his little stashes. But you know, Although, like I, I can't. I, I would. I would. I am actually excited to get into the McCoy. I hope we actually have time for that, and we do. Although they Say the that. bundles of money they found that kid found on the beach, the way it was worn was worn in such a way that it would have happened if it had washed onto that beach and then been buried. Not if it had been buried by hand, it would have looked a little different, like the way the the corners and everything were worn. That's right. I saw so, a map where a gentleman that pointed out how he ditched it and it could have floated down. Oh, damn it! I forgot about that. So they think that that money washed down that river, and they also think that um, it's possible that he had dropped that money from the bag on his way down. So the the money itself that was found actually kind of raises more questions than it was answered. There's there's even a dis, like they're not 100% sure when it washed onto that shore because you have the rubber bands that were connect that were um holding the bundles together were still there and given the timeline the rubber bands if they had been above ground would have degraded in a certain amount of time. There had also been like dredging operations in the area and there's I mean I don't really want to get into the bundles too much but there's a lot of controversy is controversy in the in the sense that they're not 100% sure when that money arrived there and how it got buried in the sand. It was not buried that deeply, but the the best evidence suggests that it sort of washed there from the river, but even if it had washed there from the river, one of the things that kind of is strange is that the bundles stayed together. If there were three bundles floating in the water together, they probably would have not washed ashore in the same spot. They would have dispersed. So that that's kind of what I mean when it's Which is when I say I it controversial buried. is we don't have a theory that could explain how that money ended up there in its current condition. It's sort of a strange thing, just like the entire case. It's kind of unexplainable and we're not really sure how that money ended up there. And personally, I don't think he buried it there because at the time, the weather was really bad. It was snowing. It was in the middle of the night. He did not have the proper clothing or gear to survive in like sub-zero temperatures or however cold it was there. It was like really 
cold. On the ground, it was probably warmer. In the air, it was sub-zero. So by the time he reached the ground, he would have been freezing his balls off and bordering on like hypothermia and like losing toes and stuff. He wouldn't have had time to, you know, at his leisure, just bury it in different places randomly and then somehow come back and find it later. There's no way he would have found it. Oh, yeah. I have a better theory, and this one is just the most recent, is that it could be Loki from uh, Marvel. <laughs> what? I you saw that. Are... Yeah, <laughs> you... I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. And if, it you've just seen, kinda... if you've seen Loki, then you then you know the reference at the in, end. Uh, in the first episode, yeah, it was a bet he lost with Thor, and like he, he was the one that was the robber. He, he was D.B. Cooper, and when he jumped out, he got zapped up back into... Uh, Freaking Asgard. That's right. There's a oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Uh-huh. And he's wearing the sunglasses, and they have him in the black he has suit, the whole suit with the yeah. tie yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Hey, it checks it's all great. the boxes. Yeah, totally. It really does. I like it. Okay, so there's a couple of miscellaneous things to talk about about this case. I think Agent Ether has a bunch of stuff. What do you got over there, Ether? I do have a bunch of stuff. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the time period. Now, this is before I was born. This is during. Uh, the presidency of Nixon, it's during a recession. There's a lot of civil unrest. Which I, I have to uh, bump in with uh, Nixon here. He's got some of the most amazing quotes you'll ever see. He, he's a very quotable guy. So, for example, um, with I, I probably shouldn't say this, but if you're familiar with the Bohemian Grove, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. But mm-hmm. I'm sure we're going to get to it. It's only a matter of time. It's actually really close to where I live, believe it or not. I could just drive down there if I wanted to and then just get kicked out by security. But um, Bro, bro, we should, we should do like a, uh, like, like, let's like a, like break into the Bohemian Grove. Because I'm sure <laughs> yeah. they're, they're not listening. They're never going to hear this, you know. Yeah, yeah. We're not popular enough. But um, I mean, like, 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 let's camp inside the Bohemian Grove, you know. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm sure nobody would notice. uh, uh, (laughs) It's like a flash mob camp, you know, like, but, but, um, it's a, um, so Nixon actually went to the Bohemian Grove one time and his quote was now, um, I might edit this out. I don't know because it's, it's definitely offensive and not PC. I know, I know the quote you might have to (laughs) use a a euphemism. It's not your quote. It's a presidential quote. I'm not saying this is something that I subscribe to, but, um, this is what Nixon said about the whole thing. He said, like, it's the faggiest goddamn thing I've ever seen, you know? <laughs> and it's just, it's just, that quote is just so Nixon. That quote just, it just seems hey, hilarious to me. I liked your hey, Nixon impersonation. <laughs> yes, I was about to just say, after, after that, nobody has any uh, reason to uh, to discount our accent skills because that was a great impersonation that was, right that there. Was Nixon, thank you. Yes. Nixon has a very, very particular accent, I believe, you know? I got one. <laughs> or, and just, or I'm not a criminal. Just to say, hey, I like everybody. I got nothing against nobody. I didn't say that. Nixon did. And I just thought it was hilarious because in the context of the time and who Nixon was and then looking at yeah. it, well, looking back in history and just like, he was, Nixon was just, he, that guy was just a lunatic, you know? It just. It sounds like know. something Nixon would say. Yeah. That guy you was know? just a lunatic. <laughs> and it just, it just picture who he was and him going to this, if you know anything about Bohemian Grove, which I don't want to go on that tangent. Imagine Nixon at that place. That's exactly what he would say about it, right? Like, mm, yeah. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's funny. But, anywho, 
Continue, Agent Ether, please. Anywho, during Nixon's term, there would be over 100 skyjackings, and half of them would be successful. Most of them were being routed to Cuba. In fact, the rate of hijackings to Cuba was so high that pilots would carry maps for the approach to Havana Airport, and it became a catchphrase, take me to Cuba. <laughs> so everybody That's was crazy. aware of these skyjackings. It was... It was commonplace. People were scared to get on airplanes. And so, and at the same time, there's this recession and airlines aren't doing very well anyways. And so they tried to kind of revamp themselves. And Northwest Airlines was one of the airlines trying to beat its competition. And so it had this new idea. It had a central component. Red was part of it. Everything was red because, you know, sex sells. So these stewardesses were handpicked for their beauty, for their poise. They had to go to, like, stewardess school. Um, United Airlines had a, a, a theme. Every passenger gets warmth, friendliness, and extra care. Some may even get a wife. And <laughs> Bran of Stews were nicknamed Poochie Galores after the Bond girl from, what was the Bond film? Uh, I don't. Gold, uh, was that gold was finger? Where, so it was, was actually it pussy galore. Was it called, pussy galore? That's right. Yeah, yeah. they're called Pucci galores because their outfits were designed by Emilio uh, Pucci. Which is like such bad writing. Like, <laughs> you, you, like, how high were those fuckers who wrote that script? Where uh, all right, we need a character. He's a man and he has a big dick. All right, let's name him Raging Cock. All right, let's do it. I mean, come on, dude. Come on. Try just a little bit harder. Pussy galore. Are you kidding me? Come on. So I have one more because oh, I just one thought. One of the best names ever. <laughs> I just thought these airlines, they were trying so hard and it was so blatantly obvious what they're doing. So National Airlines theme, you know, they had all this advertising and billboards. They had this beautiful stewardess. And the quote was, I'm Cheryl, fly me. And of course, <laughs> women's livers went just like ape shit. Like they really did not like uh, that. They were boycotting. <laughs> they were picketing. They were demanding that these ads get taken down and they had signs. They said things like, go fly yourself <laughs> national. Like they were really mad. You know, this well, was a, it, it, it puts some pretty damn unreasonable expectations. I, I couldn't imagine the amount of like harassments uh, that they, they encountered after those type of advertisements came out, you know, just in their yeah. data. You know what I mean? It's, I, you I, know, <laughs> this was in the seventies and I, I, I'm still feeling a little uncomfortable about this. Like I, I got mixed emotions. Like that sounds badass, but I'm like, Whoa, wait a minute. That's like, that's really bad. Like it's just, it's a strange thing, man. Even back then it was a strange thing. It had to have been. So yeah, Flo actually, been. she went through training where she was taught, she says, beauty techniques, like applying lipstick and foundation, because this is really important to being a stewardess in addition to how to sit, how to talk. They were mm -hmm. also, these stewardesses were expected to maintain a certain weight and you were caught out by these spotters and you would be put on unpaid probation if you gained too much weight. Wow. So this is the kind of environment that this was taking place in. It's, it's a time before my time. It's completely different than it is now. There's a lot less concern about, you know, um, 
lives being lost because at the time the planes were hijacked, but a lot of times people weren't actually killed. There were some exceptions. Uh, Ten days before the D.B. Cooper uh, skyjacking, there was a Canadian man named Paul Sini, and he was wearing a mask, carrying a shotgun, and he threatened to blow up Air Canada with 40 pounds of explosives, and he demanded $1.5 million dollars but he kept changing his mind about where he wanted to refuel and how much money he wanted. And as he was putting on a parachute, a purser who's like the head flight attendant went ahead and let him have it from behind with a fire axe. Damn. That was, damn. That was all over the news. Savage. <laughs> totally savage. What was the name of that per? It was a purser. A purser who is like the, I think, the lead flight attendant. I think they handle the okay. money and stuff. They do, Oh, you're right. Yeah. I think the person, so the titles have changed. The names yeah. have changed. So the person nowadays is the lead flight attendant. But back then they handled money on like international flights. And then like, like back then, they probably would have been less likely to have like Apple Pay and credit cards and stuff. There would have been a lot more cash back then to pay for like in-flight drinks and things, right? Yeah, yeah. So then weeks before uh, the D.B. Cooper hijacking, a charter jet was taken over by a man with a bomb and a gun. And, you know, the pilot told the insurance company and the bureau, he said, look, I think this guy's serious. He's going to blow up this plane. You need to go ahead and give us some fuel. And they refused. They're like, we're not going to give in. We're not going to comply to his demands. And so this guy did kill the pilot, the pilot's wife, and himself. So although it was uncommon that people died during these hijackings, it did happen. Hmm. But in general, the hijackers wanted to get something. Usually somewhere. Somewhere. Or some or money. Some money. It wasn't uh, like, you know, more recent things where they wanted to actually blow the blow stuff up and they didn't no. care if they died themselves. No. So yeah, it's it a little kind different. Of different. Yeah. And you would think with all this going on that the FAA would tell the airlines, hey, you have to spend some money. You have to put in things like metal detectors. But the airlines, you know, they're going through this recession. There's a lot of competition and they don't want to inconvenience their passengers. So they don't. It's what? the security is left up to each individual airline. And not only that, how they handle the hijacking situation is also left up to the airline. So if they want to comply or deny the hijacker's request, that's not up to the police or the bureau. That's up to like the president of the airline. So wait, back up. So there was a time, this, this didn't happen here, like on earth. <laughs> <laughs> this happened in an alternate dimension because you said that the airlines cared about inconveniencing their customers. That didn't happen here. That's what they said. They didn't want to inconvenience their passengers. That's, no, no, no. That's, timeline. that's an alternate dimension. That's not, I don't believe that actually happened here. Hey, well, planes used to be a lot different. If you look at just the like room, the leg room on the plane. You actually, you actually got customer service back yeah, then? Yeah, exactly. Wow. Because I feel like I, I, every, I don't fly that often, but every time I fly, I feel like, uh, you know, from start to finish, it's nothing but middle fingers the whole time, you know, right in my <laughs> face. <laughs> that's, that's my experience of flying. I don't do it unless I absolutely have to, because that's how bad it has gotten. It's just hard to imagine a time when <laughs> they actually 
said, oh, well, maybe we should treat our customers good, right? That's crazy to me. Anyways, sorry. So in the case of Dan Cooper, it was actually President Nirop who said, you know what, the insurance company is going to cover this. Just give the guy his 200 k and go along with whatever he wants, whatever he wants to do. And so that's why he was given the money, whereas, you know, other hijackers weren't even given fuel. It was the president who made the decision to go ahead and comply, even though the bureau was against it. They, they didn't want to go along with it. Hmm. But even though they lost $200,000, which is $1.5 by today's standards, Ultimately, we don't really know if those explosives were real or not, and we don't really know if this guy, who apparently had ice water for blood, would have actually followed through with anything. I mean, maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't, but he was also very clever, so he could have done something to actually hurt somebody. And he did request four parachutes, right? The idea being that if uh, if he had to, he could have forced some of the right. passengers or, the or I mean, some I of the think. flight crew or somebody to jump with him. So taking them as hostages. So we don't know how far this could have possibly escalated. Well, yeah, the, so, the chief psychiatrist for the FAA uh-huh. thought that Cooper was going to take Tina, the stewardess, with him using the second parachute and then blow up the plane. Uh-huh. That was his assessment of the situation. And they still let him fly. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that guy's close to retirement anyways. Who cares if he gets blown up, right? No, but yeah, that's the that's what I was saying is like, we don't know how far this guy could have gone if he would have killed anybody. Somebody who's going to be that calm during a hijacking, he could put a cap in somebody's head without even thinking about it probably. So it's probably a really good thing for those people that he went along with the demands that, I mean, the president went along with the demands uh, in the long run, I don't think it's a good thing to go along with the demands because it just encourages more crime, I guess, in the long run. But in this specific case, maybe things could have been much, much worse if they didn't give him everything that he wanted. Perhaps. 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 So I just wanted to mention a couple of interesting facts, too. Cooper was actually carrying Benzedrine pills for the crew. You know what those are? Those are to keep them awake. He said he didn't want the crew falling asleep. I don't think he ever gave them to the crew, but man, this guy was prepared yeah. for like different eventualities as well. Like not only did he know what he was doing, but I feel like he might have had some contingency plans in place. He he had he had everything planned down to meticulous detail to the point where like Ether just said he planned stuff that he didn't actually have to do. He had a he had an A plan, plan A. Plan B, Plan C, and Plan D. This guy was ready to go. Yeah, he really was. And he was very careful, you know, when the airplane landed initially, he had the stewardess close all of the blinds so that he had to turn off the lights. You know, he put the passengers out, but he remained very calm. Somebody even came back for like a briefcase that they left behind and he seemed slightly agitated, but he kept his cool and let the passenger get back off. Yeah. Oh, here's your, yeah, here's your brief. What could possibly, uh, if I was, uh, there's nothing I own that I would go back. If somebody had hijacked an airplane with but a bomb. But they didn't know. They didn't know the plane oh, was being hijacked, remember? Know. Oh, yeah, that's crazy. They led them yeah. to this bus when they got off the tarmac. That. And yeah. they, took, they took a roll call to see who was on the bus. And the only person missing was Dan Cooper. <laughs> that's right. I forgot they didn't know. That is such a crazy... How slick was this guy? Man, th- 
This guy was so slick, he hijacked an airplane and nobody even knew. Well, the pilots <laughs> called back and they asked him, they said, what would you like us to do? The pa- passengers are getting impatient because they were circling the airport waiting for them to get the parachutes and the money. And they said they had some mechanical issues. And so they didn't know what to do. And they're like, well, let's ask him. Let's ask Dan Cooper what he wants to do. And basically he said, let's keep this to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So they didn't know. Yeah. I also read that when he was on the ground and they were refueling, the reason he wanted to close all the blinds on the windows was he was worried about police snipers. And he should have been because there were police snipers. (laughs) So, but the point is, is he thought, he thought of everything like, he didn't he didn't miss anything with this plan and that's probably why this is to this day still the only unsolved case of of air piracy because this guy was so incredibly thorough just unbelievably thorough every single detail he had foreseen in advance he knew what was going to happen and he executed his plan perfectly yeah, he did ask, however, when the money came on the plane, he was upset because it didn't have straps. It was just like this sack instead of the, you know, type of backpack he'd asked for. So he had to improvise and he did it so coolly and calmly. He took a parachute and he cut the straps. They're called shroud lines or cords. And he tied it around the canvas money bag to secure it to himself. And he was just very calm and collected about it, according to Tina. And then he wants to lower these aft stairs and that he wasn't sure exactly how to do. So he had her show him how to operate them until he understood how to do it. And what he really wanted her to do was to stay back there with him and operate it while he jumped out. But she was really scared she was going to get sucked out. And even though he was trying to tell her that because of the conditions he'd specified for the airplane that she would be fine, she was so scared. He's like, you know what? It's fine. Just go into the cockpit and I'll take care of it myself. And again, how could he possibly know that? Your average person would have no idea what conditions would exist that somebody would get sucked out of an airplane, right? Yeah. I don't know. How fast would the airplane... Is that even possible? Would you get sucked out? At what speed? At what altitude? I don't know. But he knew. I feel like she must have had a... She must have kept her head too, though. Not to be hysterical at this point. You know, he's ready to jump out of the airplane. He still has the bomb. Let's not forget. Right. He still has the bomb on him. And so Tina says, what are you going to do with this bomb? And he says, I'm going to take it with me or I'll leave it here, but I'm going to disarm it. And he sends her to the front to the cockpit where I bet she's still scared because he still has a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, she was, she's open about it. You can see a bunch of interviews with, where she's telling about the experience. And mm-hmm. she she was uh, she was even saying uh, prayers for the, 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 you know, the hijacker because she just wanted everything to be, you know, Hunky dory. She she was really a, a gentle soul, really, really. But is this yeah. the stewardess who later became a nun? I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure she I wouldn't did. be surprised. <laughs> she later became a nun. And just to That's once hilarious. again illustrate how meticulous this guy was, you remember the note that I mentioned earlier that he he handed the stewardess a note to tell her to sit down next to him and to, you know all that stuff. He actually got that note back from her. So we don't, the FBI and the guard, they don't have that as a piece of evidence because he retrieved it. 
That's how thorough this guy was. Just insanely well, thorough. Well, the one thing that they didn't, they kind of dropped the ball on, but they wouldn't, I, I'm not sure they could anticipate this, but the cigarette buds that he was smoking, um, that right. he disposed into the ashtray, what, those weren't collected, and well, nobody really knows what the, where the hell those went. But I have, I have a theory on that. So I read that they had those at one point, but they lost them. But I couldn't really find out how they lost them. How do you lose evidence? That doesn't make any sense, right? Especially something so important. As yeah, like, like the, uh, the recording of the movie. I'll never buy that shit. No, so, you know, you don't lose evidence. That's that's so fucking. My, th- <laughs> okay. my so theory lazy. is that the guy in charge of the evidence locker is sitting there having a nick fit because he hasn't been able to smoke for six hours. <laughs> he sees these cigarette butts. They've got you know they got some tobacco sitting on them still, like. Probably a good puff or two. And he, he fucking lights him up. And then once he satisfies his nicotine craving, he goes, oh, shit, that was evidence. So he has to get rid of them. And uh, I don't know where, I don't know. I have no idea what happened to those cigarette butts, Captain. They're just, they're not here. What? What cigarette butts? <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's my theory as to how those could have disappeared. I don't know. It's as good as nothing, I suppose. They basically didn't collect <laughs> any evidence. I mean, there were too many fingerprints. You know, for them to distinguish between all the different passengers, the cigarettes, the super common smoke brand, um, I don't think it's around anymore, but it's called Raleigh. Raleigh? Raleigh. Probably like Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. So there's there's like no evidence. There's no well, evidence. Well, that's actually not exactly true. They do have his tie and the that's tie That's right. Clip, the tie. Right? And it was a, seen it a, was picture a fake that. tie, right? It was like a clip-on tie. It was a tie from J.C. Penney, apparently. Which I mean, is is a clip-on tie fake? I mean, it's still a tie, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I mean, it looks real to me. <laughs> I'm a fan, by the way. You lazy bums. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can respect a real tie. I have a bunch of them, but you know, a clip-on is just so damn like convenient. Efficient. You know, it's a clip-on tie is more elegant than an old-style tie because, well, it's just so much easier, right? It looks just yeah. as good. And it's just so much easier to put on. Why wouldn't you use that's, it? I don't know. Is this an important say. detail? It is an important yes. detail. Could it be? I mean, could the yes, fact it that it's a clip-on tie be somehow important? <laughs> like it's part of a costume, you know? Well, the, yeah. It's easy to dispose. Think of it, too. It's yeah. easy to get the fuck off. Well, you know and I mean? at the highest ends of clip-on ties, might I add, if you, if you don't know, you can't tell, what difference does it make? So about the tie, they did find some DNA samples on the tie, but not only that, they also found some rare metals on the tie, like titanium, for example. And at this time, there were not that many places where you could get like titanium dust on your tie. So that, but the problem is that there were so many different things found on the tie. Some of them were rare. So they're able to narrow it down so that maybe he was like a manager at one of these facilities or who knows. But the, it wasn't enough to say specifically where he worked, but they think that he may have been like a manager of some kind at like a specific manufacturing plant, like maybe a place that made a particular kind of batteries or maybe a place that worked with titanium specifically, which uh, hmm. it was like some military hmm. contract. I forget the details. It I was, was going to um, say military sounds more. I didn't, I didn't take specific notes on that stuff because it wasn't conclusive. There were enough different places where we're not really sure. And it kind of adds up to a whole lot of nothing, like pretty much everything else in this case. But the tie is actually an important piece of evidence. 
And maybe somebody a lot smarter than me someday will be able to put those pieces together and figure out, okay, this is the factory where you could have only had these elements ending up on the tie and maybe this pollen was found on the tie and they'd be able to pinpoint it to an exact area. But uh, I'm not that smart, so I can't say for sure. But the tie is oh, definitely no. an important piece of evidence. Probably well, what would you say? What was how how popular was like commercial skydiving? Like, what where, where would you like as a hobby? Where, I don't would you know. say that I don't was think it a was. thing? No. Yeah. No. Right. I mean, I I definitely wholeheartedly believe that he had military training. I mean, to strap up into one of those those parachutes as you know somebody like joe schmo coming out of nowhere you're gonna get those straps wrong or something's off you know what i mean like and he, he came with a plan like you guys you know have clearly stated and you know a military man doesn't go in you know without a plan so i, I definitely think he, he knew exactly what altitude how to like where he wanted to jump how he wanted to jump and all that good stuff you know so i yeah, and the, F- the FBI and some other, you know, prominent investigators who who hypothesize about this stuff, it, it seems like the predominant opinion is that he didn't have the skills necessary to jump out of the plane. He wouldn't have known where he was when he jumped and all, all this other nonsense like that. But if you look at how carefully he planned this thing out, um, I think there's a good chance that he did have skydiving experience, that he might have been a war veteran even. And that he knew what the hell he was doing. All right. I totally was mistaken. So I'm looking now, and it looks like around 1907, parachuting was actually a thing. It was a sport. Now, it was mostly men who were coming back from the war. It was predominantly male in their 40s. But still, it was it was definitely a thing. So people yeah. were jumping out of planes. So. Anyways, a lot of the people will say, well, we're not even sure that he would have been able to open his parachute, but he wasn't jumping from 200 feet. He was jumping from 10,000 feet. Very doable. Now he was jump. The plane was going a little faster than you might normally go for a parachute jump, which is like they were 170 knots. Normally a parachute jump might be done at like, let's say 90 to a max of 150 knots. But still, not that much out of that range. And there have been experts who said that not only would it be possible that I would actually try that jump myself, not only that. Well, they're they're yeah. actually, they're actually, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, because you might be just about to mention what I was just about to say. No, sorry. no, you're, you're going to say what I was about to say. So what, go ahead, go ahead. I've been talking for a well, while. There's actually been private, like, like, uh, like you, you can hire somebody to go on the DB Cooper flight and jump at the speed he is supposed to be jumping at and the area he's supposed to have jumped in with the, the type or similar equipment, you know, obviously much safer now because there has been a lot of advancements, you know, in, in safety equipment relating to this uh, this thing. But you can actually, like, pay to go on the D.B. Cooper run is what they call right. it. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's what it's called, right? The D.B. Cooper run? You'd that's, have to pay me to jump out of an airplane. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. And not only that, but also out of a 727, like real specific. Yeah. Yes. You can you can go do this exact jump. So to those people yeah, who say that it wasn't possible for him to do the jump, that he wouldn't have had time to pull his ripcord, blah, 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 bullshit. Yeah. 
This jump was 100% yeah. doable. We know that for yeah. a fact. He could have done for, it. For somebody, for somebody who's all, all about the X's and O's and cro- crossing your T's and dotting your I's and, stu- and stuff, yeah, because it's out of the accepted range, like the speed and stuff especially, uh, all right, they might say, like, no, it's not doable. And I've heard, actually, people being interviewed about their opinion on whether D.B. Cooper could have done this at this speed and, and altitude. And I've heard some people say, no, no, it's not possible. He would have died, you know. It's, it's outside the acceptable limits. And then I hear other people say, no, I've actually jumped at higher speeds than that. Like, is it dangerous? Yeah, but you could totally do it. I've done it, you know, like, so I don't know. It's obviously been. And this was happening at nighttime, correct? Yeah, it was night. He was, that's an experienced, you know, skydiver to do this with zero, not, you know, zero optics, you know, that's kind of ballsy. The the idea that he would plan everything about this hijacking so meticulously. And then just randomly then, jump out of an airplane. And then not plan. Yeah, I don't think. The jump and not plan yeah. escaping the forest. The idea that he wouldn't is, plan yeah. after a certain point is just fucking absurd. And that planning did not li- did not end once he jumped out of that plane. Right. You know, with how meticulous he was, you know, obviously like you had uh, mentioned, you know, stated many times before, many examples of how meticulous he was. Yeah. I have, I, I don't, I don't have any, I mean, not, he not was, a single part he was of me away that, that, as soon as he took off with the money in the second round. When he was landed on the, I mean, that, that had to be the most, because there was those agitated moments as we've pointed out. And I think that. Right there in that moment was that like they could have sprinted in there, you know, shot him, like done something to intervene. But like that was that critical moment where he got the money and when he was gone after that point, he's like, oh, all right, well, yeah, this is it easy cake work, easy clap. He could have had somebody on, you know, working with him and exactly. the, the fucking boat hanging out in the water. I mean, honestly, yeah. there. This, if I mean, that could work. I mean, it can work a lot better than people think is having, you know, somebody who you could easily split a couple of bucks with to just pick your ass up, you know, in the yeah. water and bail. And there was a lot of people that were boat operators and, you know, like in wartime efforts where they were fucking, it was dark as shit. So yeah. they could definitely do this stuff with low visibility. He would have had some kind of escape plan. He would have, whether an accomplice or a vehicle that he had planted ahead of time that was ready to go, he would have had something ready to go. And people say that, um, you know, people skeptical that he might have escaped. They say that, well, he just told them to fly south to Mexico City. He didn't really know where he was. But that's not true. Based on his conversation with the stewardess, he knew exactly where he was based on landmarks and stuff. He knew the area fairly well. And he picked the flight plan. He knew exactly what the flight plan would be. He knew where he would have had to jump out if he was meeting an accomplice or something. Like, he had all this stuff dialed in. Like this, He didn't just randomly jump out over the forest. He knew where he was when he jumped out. He chose to jump out at a specific place and time. Even if it was nighttime, this guy knew what the fuck he was doing he would have known exactly when to jump out of that plane and where to jump out of that plane to get to where he needed to go to escape. And if you, if anybody who says, ah, well, he just kind of randomly jumped out and he didn't know where he was, this, this guy, he didn't, he wouldn't, this is the way he planned the whole rest of this thing. He would not have just randomly jumped out in the middle of nowhere. He would have jumped out at a specific spot because that's how he planned this entire thing. He planned everything yeah. really specifically, you know? 
Well, and also somebody who's just going to jump out in a random spot. That's uh, the actions of somebody who's panicking in the moment. And this individual does not seem like that kind of person that would make that decision. It, at no point has he ever been described as being in a panic mode or anything. He always calm, cool, and collected, right? Always, yeah. So, so I mean, I think it's it's absolutely reasonable. If this guy was that you know meticulous about his planning and planned ahead, I think it's completely possible he could have you know let, let just for instance, let's say he uh, stashed like a snowmobile or something like that. You know what I mean? Or you know, if you had a snowmobile that you were able to get to, you know, I mean, you you could make that ten mile trek pretty damn fast, right? Real quick. You know, no problem now, at all. Now, I mean, with the weather and stuff, it's also possible that the snow tracks, the tracks left behind by a, a, something like that. Now, this is all just speculation, obviously, but it's it's possible that those those tracks could have been covered up and you know uh, snowed upon, or you know maybe the snow melt by the time the uh, anybody got to any of those areas, they wouldn't have noticed the tracks. Maybe I'm just saying this is all speculation. Speculation, you know. Right, and a lot of the people who were in the search party were not like forestry experts. They were military or police or something. So if they saw some tracks that had been degraded, they might not have even been able to identify them as snowmobile tracks. Yeah, well, and they might have even thought that they were their own or part of the search party. Right, and it was was at nighttime, so the search party wouldn't have even really been able to see much until, you know, at the very most or very earliest, like the next morning. And by then, and the, there was like a lot of rain and snow, supposedly. I don't know yeah. exactly what the conditions were like on the ground, but it's yeah. unlikely that any sort of tracks would have survived even a couple of hours to be found, let alone Well, even days. from the air. Yeah. Even from the air, say if like even you're in, you're in a helicopter and you're going slower speeds with a searchlight, maybe even at nighttime, you, you still may be looking right at some tracks and you don't see them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's a difficult thing to find. It's a needle in the haystack, if anything, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. And they may even have been searching the wrong area. But Yeah, uh, absolutely. Let's, let's get on to a little bit. Let's move on to some of the um, most plausible suspects. So, what do, you, do you want to start with uh, Kenneth Christensen, Agent Ether? Yeah, sure. So, Lyle Christensen. Kenneth. No, Lyle, his brother. Oh, his brother. Okay, sorry. Lyle Christensen (laughs) is Kenneth's brother, and that's how we know anything about Kenneth, is secondhand through his brother, who is convinced that he was, in fact, D.B. Cooper. May may I just uh, interject real quick? Sure. I don't don't know why, but I've always uh, liked the name Lyle. I've always trusted. I've met two people named Lyle in my entire life, and I've always trusted trusted the hell out of them. They're good dudes. It's a good, solid name. So we it can is, trust what this guy has to say about yeah, his brother. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, why not? <laughs> so Kenneth, <laughs> Kenneth was in the Army. He had a parachutist badge. He had joined the paratroopers. He was an elite paratrooper. Uh, he was one of 80 to graduate out of an original uh, 262 total. So what you're saying is he's kind of a badass because... He cut the mustard when nobody else could. He did. He was in the 11th Airborne Division, the Angels. He was an angel. Okay. Uh, His family was farmers, and they were somewhat successful in middle class until the recession hit, the Depression, the Great Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. And so he could have gone to college for journalism. He had a scholarship, but instead he enlisted in the Army. By the time he finished training— 
Uh, He went overseas, and the war was over, so he decided to work as a mail clerk on the base. Still, he had all this parachuting experience. He just didn't go to war and parachute. And after the war, he went on the road. He sold encyclopedias. He did some odd jobs. And then he was hired for the airline. Which airline? Northwest Orient. You don't say. I do say. And he worked. Hot dog. I know. It's amazing. And he worked uh, in different places, including Alaska Shamu. Is that right? Yeah. One of the, there's, when Alaska kind of is reaching towards Russia with that long line of islands, what do you call that? An archipelago or the Bering Strait? I don't know. But he, yeah, he was stationed in like a remote island in Alaska for for a little while working for this uh, airline. That's all I had to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting. I was like, did I just cut out? (laughs) Yeah, he worked for the airline and he was stationed in a remote part of Alaska. And the thing is, um, he never made a lot of money. There were a lot of strikes at the time. And although he wanted to be a steward on the plane, he ended up working as a purser. He ended up working, what was it, in baggage or something? Like, he had various odd jobs, but he just wasn't making the money that he was hoping he would make on the well, airline. He pr- he probably didn't know how to put on his eyeliner and stuff correctly. You yeah, know? <laughs> that's definitely, you know? I mean, it's, you know, it's the 70s, and they're looking for a certain kind of a person. And I thought that was interesting because when he, when uh, Dan Cooper was hijacking the plane, the stewardess basically asked him why. And he said, well, I don't have a grudge against your airline. I just have a grudge. Yeah. And that's interesting Hmm. for this particular suspect because he seemed like, uh, like the kind of motivated person. He really wanted to make a name. Well, not a name. He really wanted to make a life for himself, you know, but he was never able to quite earn enough money under the economic circumstances in the company he was working for. Mm-hmm. And I think a reasonable person would understand that because of all these strikes, it's not really the airline's fault because they're not the ones going on strike. And it's not the striker's fault because they think that they're trying to do better for themselves. It's really nobody's fault. So maybe he doesn't have a grudge against anybody specifically but he did spend years of his life trying to make a living and not really being able to do it. So he has a grudge against somebody who he can't really define specifically. So he just has a grudge. And since the airline has money and the workers don't have, well, at least not that he can really get his hands on, he's going to yeah. go after the airline, you know? So he's got a grudge and he's going to take it on in the airline yeah. just because, well, when it comes to 200,000 or 1.5 million or whatever it is, uh, you don't really need a why that much. It's just, <laughs> it's its own reason, yeah. right? So th- there's a couple of, the, of other details about this particular suspect. The FBI doesn't like this guy for a couple of reasons because the sus- this guy, uh, Kenny, was five foot eight inches and witnesses said that D.B. Cooper was 5'10 to six foot. But uh, mm, that's- Could have been wearing heels. Kind of close enough. He, yeah, he might have been wearing dress shoes with high heels or something. Especially like, if it was sure. Bobby Dayton. Like, we're talking about two inches. That's that's not that far off. Especially if I find that estimating somebody else's height is fairly difficult if they're not very close to your height. So if they're shorter by a lot or taller by a lot, I mean, estimating somebody and being two inches off, 
that would not really be that hard to do, you know, because yeah. your your perspective is you're either looking up or down at them. It'd be really hard to do that accurately, you know. And yet the stewardess mm-hmm. who spent the most time with him, Tina, detailed his shoes very carefully. Oh, did she? She okay. did. She said the shoes were brown, ankle length leather, and had no laces. All right. So how high were the heels? I don't know, but she was so meticulous in how she described them. I would think if they did have higher heels, she might have noticed. Maybe, but she might have also been, you know, a little distracted by the situations. Plus, a lot of dress shoes that match the description you just showed me for men do have a heel. Now, it's not a two-inch heel. (laughs) It's often quite a lot less than that, but... It's more than what you might expect from like, I don't know, flip-flops or, you know, running shoes or something. So it's possible he could have been wearing something that added a little bit of height. And how tall was she? Do you know how tall she was? I do not know how tall she was. Because if she was not exactly his height, which I'm guessing since she described him as being tall, she was shorter than him by a little bit. It might have been hard for her, like I was saying, to accurately estimate, which is why we have a height range. 5'10 to 6 foot, which is, you know, a two-inch range. She could have been off by two inches very easily, in my opinion. And other witnesses describe an even larger height range that he could have been in. But they prob- those other witnesses probably weren't as close to him for as long as she was. So, I don't know. I think that um, the height range and also his skin complexion, Kenny was had a lighter skin complexion than D.B. Cooper, Um, but those things, I think those things could be easily faked. So if this guy is so meticulous, he would probably also want to remain anonymous because he's not an idiot. He could also fake a skin tone or a height a little bit, right? It's not outside the realm of possibility. Somebody who had planned so meticulously. You forgot to mention that Kenny was bald. Yeah, but he did wear a toupee and... He wore, according to people that knew him, he wore this toupee all the time until the time of the hijacking, and then he stopped wearing it. Why would he stop wearing it after this hijacking happened? He was embracing his true self. Or maybe he didn't want to be seen with hair anymore. I don't know. But there's a lot of stuff. There's a ton of stuff like this with Kenny Christensen that's very circumstantial, but it all adds up to kind of make you say, maybe he is the guy. Or, hmm if you didn't want to say that last bit. It's a definite possibility. Yeah. But there's, so there's a lot of stuff. Like, for example, he was left-handed. And like I mentioned earlier, D.B. Cooper was left-handed. There was a a picture of this guy, but um, so obviously there's pictures of Kenny, but they showed a picture to one of the flight attendants who said that it looked like D.B. Cooper, but she wasn't 100% sure. And this was shown to her many, many years later. So that anecdote in and of itself is pretty much completely worthless because it's so many years after the fact. And this stewardess is so old that you could have shown her a picture of Mickey Mouse and she could have said it was it looked like him, right? But it's still kind of a tantalizing little piece of evidence. Well, you have the FBI composite sketch and you have the pictures of Kenny. And I didn't really think they looked... They look too much alike. But when they're getting this composite together, you know, they're doing it based on everyone's descriptions and then kind of overlaying them all together, right? That's how they do it. Right. Yeah. I don't I don't know exactly how reliable the composite sketch is. 
It's interesting, but it looks like a lot of the witnesses. <laughs> I guess back then they had this facial identification catalog. It had stuff like the hair and the eyes and the nose. And then they would put something together, very general stuff. And all the witnesses had different composite sketches. Oh, I said witnesses. I meant suspects. If you go through pictures of all the, the main suspects. My, my favorite composite sketch ever uh-huh. is uh, that one. I believe it was, I want to say it was on Fox News, like way back in the day, like a local news uh, uh-huh. affiliate or something like that. And the, uh, the, re- the reporter at the desk that was describing the composite drawing looked Just almost like- identical. Identical yeah. to the composite drawing. I remember that. It, it <laughs> was, I, I, I believe the guy was like, a, I think like a maybe late 30s to early 40s black male. And he was a little bit heavier set, maybe a little bit balding at the front. And like the, the guy looked, he had a mustache, I think, if I'm, if I'm not, not correct. <laughs> but but uh, like the, the drawing looked just freaking, I've seen, I've seen this meme out there before also, you know, every time I mm-hmm. think of a composite drawing or sketch, whatever it's called, I always think of that. And I just laugh a little bit, you know. Well, yeah, and the the sketch for D.B. Cooper looks very, it looks enough alike a lot of the suspects where it could be many of them. You know, to me, it's just sort of like a fairly generic looking dude that could be a lot of people. Yeah. There's a couple of other really interesting and tantalizing pieces of information about this particular suspect. For example... Uh, he liked bourbon. He was he didn't just like it like that was his drink. And if you remember oh, back earlier, if I remember to say it, D.B. Cooper ordered a couple of bourbons on the flight. So Kenny, apparently, after the hijacking took place, Kenny had a lot of money. Like supposedly he loaned his sister like fifteen thousand dollars. He bought a mm-hmm. house in cash money and things like that. He suddenly seemed to come into to a lot of money. And we know with, with, with his his work history doesn't yeah, line up. We know how much he was making in his work, and it was something like five hundred dollars a month or something like that. It was nowhere near the amount of money that he appeared to have after the hijacking happened. Hey, he probably went to Atlantic City and placed one good solid bet. You know? Yeah. Hey, who knows? Anything's possible, right? I mean, bet on the right horse or the right you know underdog or something. You, anything's possible. So yeah. none of this is exactly conclusive. But it is very tantalizing because I think Ether mentioned that Kenny had, you know, experience jumping out of planes. He was a, a smoker. Um, you know, there's there's a lot like that. Now, I saw a TV show on the History Channel, which, as everybody knows, is like the most reputable source for this kind of stuff. Oh, for everything. <laughs> yeah. But they did go to the, the house that Kenny bought uh, after the hijacking it's now like a print shop or something. And they looked in the attic and in the, in the attic, they found like a secret compartment that looked like it had a hinge and it could have been used to hide money. On the other hand, it could have just been like a piece of wood that had been placed there. It's the way it was edited. It was kind of hard to tell if it was like a big deal or not. They do some solid editing on the history channel there. But it is just another tantalizing little piece that kind of makes you say, well, what if, you know, maybe he was, I don't know. But also on that property, supposedly when they were digging up some old trees after, after Kenny had left the property, they found a bag of money, like a plastic bag of money that had been buried near some tree stumps or something. But that one, it, I was not able to substantiate it. It was on the TV show. 
And these TV shows, they will often put stuff like that in there to kind of make the case seem more realistic than it actually is. So I don't really take that one seriously. But again, it's another thing that's just kind of interesting. Um, but other than, I mean, there's with this particular witness, we could go on and on and on. Like, what do you want to talk about? Bernie, his his friend, Bernie? No, no, you don't. Okay. <laughs> so, there, yeah, there's a guy, Bernie, um, that, you know, could have been his accomplice and uh, there's a picture of Kenny wearing like the exact same outfit that uh, DB Cooper was wearing and carrying a like a sack that looks like it has something square in it that could very well be money carrying an attache case that could have been the one that DB Cooper used. Like this guy checks a lot of boxes and I really want to believe that this guy was DB Cooper. But at the end of the day, we don't have a smoking gun and it could all just be coincidental. Like, we don't know for sure this was the guy, even though it's, yeah, man, it seems like the guy. It really seems like the guy. But I think most people think he's the guy. But again, like, I wouldn't put money on it because, it, I mean, so he had an attache case, but who didn't back then? I mean, we're talking about the 70s. Everybody had one back then, right? I mean, who knows? Maybe that's the thing back then was to put a cardboard box into a, a burlap sack and carry it around. Like everybody did that, right? I don't know. <laughs> like you could explain away a lot of this stuff, even though it seems like it's pretty much a slam dunk. It's still not a smoking gun, unfortunately. Well, and you'll have to think too, Lyle's getting an awful lot of media attention and maybe some bucks from this. Right. That's another thing is this guy seemed to want to sell the story. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you're, you know, like they interviewed this guy on this TV show and um, he was appeared to be living out of a hotel room. So even if I had a legitimate experience, look, let me put it this way. If, if a TV show, a news program, if somebody for TV interviews you, they're making a lot of fucking money off, off of that interview and they're not going to give you a dime. So if I had something important to say on a TV show, I would want to be paid for that. Even if I wasn't making it up. Just because if somebody's making money on me, I want to be on on it, you know? So I can't necessarily blame him, especially because he appeared to have, he appeared to be down on his luck and not have a lot of money. So he would be especially motivated. So there is that. He did appear to be motivated by money. But for me, that doesn't necessarily rule him out because like I said, if somebody's going to be making money on me, I want a piece of the action, no matter if the story's made up or not, either way, right? So it, oh, because nobody nobody wants to take be taken advantage of, right? Right, exactly, and that that's kind of what the news media does. Sometimes they'll take advantage of somebody, make money on their story, and they won't give them a dime. Now you could yeah. say it's that's just reporting, and that's how it's done, and whatever. But at the end of the day, somebody's getting paid, and it ain't me, you know. All yep. right, so that's one of the possible suspects. Do you have any other suspects you'd like to talk about, Agent Ether? I wanted to talk about Dwayne Lauren Weber. Oh, yeah. Anybody read about this Miss, particular suspect? Mr. Weber. Mr. Weber. No, I didn't. My internet was out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Weber was an interesting character, to say the least. And he never came out and said he was D.B. Cooper to the general public. But his wife, Joe, is sure he was Dan Cooper. And from... Wait. Oh, he's women now. He's got one His of wife, those wives, Joe? right? Like, you know, when those one of those women, you get pulled over in the car, and the the officer goes, uh, "Did you know how fast you're going, sir?" 
And then the wife says, he's drunk. He's drunk. <laughs> One of those ladies. All right. He did it. He did all of it. He's drunk. Look at him. All right. all right. I know. I know what type we're dealing with here. Okay. Continue, please. <laughs> well, she's one of many, it turns out. He had multiple wives. He had a whole... Oh, my goodness. Well, he had a whole secret oh, okay. life. The thing is, after he died, she found his wallet. And it turns out that Duane wasn't even his name. His name was John C. Collins, which is interesting because that was the wait. same as her maiden name. All right. Well, I, wait I, a take, minute. I take this, it back. Wait, I take wait, it back. Wait a minute. <laughs> wait one minute. This lady was married to this fellow and she had never seen his wallet? No, it was it was another wallet that she found in his oh. truck. Oh, I see. It wasn't okay. his actual it was a different wallet. It uh. had so it has it had his ID, it had an NRA card, it had a some sort of paper saying he'd been honorably discharged from the Navy. Hmm. So hmm. he had been okay. in the military. And that he'd been discharged from the San Marino Sanitarium. So he'd done some jail time as well. Hmm. Well, not just jail time, sanitarium, something different. Yeah, it? yeah, no kidding. All right, I take it back. Maybe this lady was not so bad after all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know, though, man. Like, uh, crazy attracts crazy sometimes, too, though. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know, because she'd cause she been a little loopy also. I don't know, maybe. After this, he she found out he had three other wives. Dang. Hot yeah. damn, this guy busy. <laughs> he was really busy. I don't think all at the same time. I think he'd, he'd been divorced. Oh, I was going to say, how oh. could you maintain that? That's... No, no, he was. Well, he unless, was unless you're a polygamist, right? And, or, or a truck driver. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. His, his ex-wife described him as somewhat of a bastard, but Joe was completely in love with him. You know, they met at a bar and he was quite the gentleman, according to her. Hmm. But you smitten, huh? I don't know about that. He sent over a, a bottle smitten? of champagne with a hundred dollar oh. bill attached to it. I mean, now, that, I, mean I don't that know about <laughs> she took Hello. that. Yeah, that ain't nothing. <laughs> you know, I, you, I wouldn't have taken that well, but she thought it was like a sign. Uh, I would try. Oh. <laughs> you see. I would never try something like that because I would expect to get slapped <laughs> right across the face immediately. No, she oh, thought he was no, the real dude. gentleman and they went home together is apparently. That, is that how, so in the 70s, or was it, I'm sure, did they meet in the 70s or maybe 60s? $100 got you is, a lot back then. Back then, a, <laughs> back then, a gentleman didn't buy you a drink. He just gave you the money up front. <laughs> that, that's crazy. <laughs> no bullshit. I got to be honest. Like, you know, if I, if, if I was like a, you know, a, a lady, you know, uh, hanging out at a bar or something like that, you know, and some dapper young gentleman gave me a bottle of champagne and a $100 bill, I'd be tempted at the very least. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's keep in mind this is like well this well is, shit this is probably like more like 500 bucks back then right because of inflation yeah you know yeah <laughs> that's that's a, that's a lot of money actually you know i oh, guess hot damn this this fella might be able to support the fuck out of me yeah <laughs> well he's making good money i mean according to her he's selling insurance he's very successful he wins things like uh cruise a trip you know he's well known for his sales uh, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he ends up having kidney disease, and her parents warned her. They said, "You know, you really shouldn't marry him because he's sick." They knew he had kidney disease, and a few years later, he got sick and he refused dialysis. So he's on his deathbed, and Joe claims that's when he told her he was Dan Cooper. Mm -hmm. huh. 
Yeah, I so, heard of that one. There's some other stuff well. she says, too. She said, once he woke up dreaming, and he'd had a bad dream, and he said he'd left Prince on the aft stairs. Hmm. She hmm. also said once she found an airline ticket to Northwest Orient in a sock drawer, but when she went back to look for it, it was missing. Oh, hmm. snap. So That's compelling. I mean, if that, if that is true, that is extremely compelling, you know? Yeah. Yeah, she's convinced to this day that he is Dan Cooper, but, well, you know, the Bureau, confessions also. the Bureau is not interested in talking to her. The case is closed. Yeah, the hmm. the bureau has some pretty strange ideas about certain. So, for example, here's a quote from one special agent Carr, C A R R, and this is talking about uh, D B Cooper's ability as a skydiver. So they didn't think that he had any experience as a skydiver. And here's a quote: We originally th- thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper. We concluded after a few years. This was simply not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with a 200 mile an hour wind in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. He also missed this that his reserve chute was only for training and had been sewn shut, something a skilled skydiver would have checked. Now this um, I, get, I, have, I have more quotes from the FBI, but I, th- I don't think I'll read them because they're all pretty mm-hmm. much like this. And if you pay attention, they're making some pretty strange assumptions. So, <laughs> for example, jumping out of an airplane under these conditions was too risky. And like hijacking an airplane in the first place isn't. This does not seem like a risk adverse <laughs> individual we're talking about here. This yeah. seems like somebody, even if they didn't have a parachute, they would have just said, oh, fuck it. I'm jumping out anyways. Like they don't give a yeah, crap about than, risk. More you know? than willing to take the risk. Yeah. So it, the assumptions they're making are actually kind of surprising. I got to admit, very surprising. I mean, they're ma- they're assuming that he didn't have experience as a paratrooper because he jumped out in the middle of the night. Well, guess what? That's something that people who jump out of airplanes do all the time. They are night jumps regularly all the yeah. time. That's not well, a weird it, thing. So if it, you had a bunch of experience doing this type of thing, then you might feel a little bit more comfortable going into these kind of circumstances, I would think. Yeah. Right. And so not, I, I'm not trying to like, I appreciate what the FBI does and I appreciate their service to this country, but some of these specific people, I question their competency and I question how, if they should have even been investigating this stuff with some of the assumptions they've make which are, to be honest, just completely absurd assumptions. So, for example, he says um, the reserve chute was for only training. It had been sewn shut. So he jumped with two parachutes, right? And one of the parachutes had been given to him was like a training chute that was for demonstration only and could not have been used for actually jumping. But they assume that he took it to jump with. But if he took two parachutes to jump with, why? Like he wouldn't have jumped with two shoes. Yeah. They just assumed that he was a dumbass. What if he <laughs> took the extra parachute so that he could have taken the materials, like the stuff in there and used it as like a makeshift jacket or something with, with how meticulously mm-hmm. this guy planned the idea that he would have just somehow jumped with the non-working parachute for some strange reason. It's just, it's absurd. It's bullshit. 
This guy knew what the fuck he was doing. He took that dummy parachute for a reason. He had four parachutes to choose from. He knew he rejected certain models of parachute. He took a specific model's parachute that like they tried to give him a type of like modern parachute and he rejected it and asked for a different one. This guy knew what a parachute was. He knew specific models of parachutes and he took these two parachutes for a good reason. We don't know what that reason was, but he did. And to say that he was a dumbass is just absurd. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing that he obviously had to pay attention to was weight distribute distribution, you know, because right. he had all the extra weight on him and, and whatever parachute that he was going to have strapped to him or strapped to the money that he had, you know, potentially, you know, thrown out uh, at the same time he dr- he jumped because like, supposedly he had all this stuff strapped to him. Am I correct on that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. He supposedly tied the money to himself with the cord and yeah, so well, he had some weight that he was jumping with. Well, qu- well, quite a bit of extra weight, right? Yeah. So, so any any parachute has a weight limit, and so like I have to assume that maybe that's why he wanted all those extra parachutes and didn't you know use them on other people was because maybe he you know ended up attaching some of this extra weight to an individual parachute because you're not going to be able to strap two parachutes on you at once, are you? Right. Exactly. Right. Well, if there's one of those, uh, what was it? I forget the term for it, but uh, I, I read somewhere that he could have used one of the other extra parachutes as like a depth finder or like a uh, not depth oh, finder, the, but like, like throw it the out one where it hangs off your follow? legs. So like, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do know what you're right. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, that's a good, that, yeah, that's a good point right there. Yeah. Because because he was going into unsure, unsure uh, conditions where he's not going to have visual, you know, the, the whole way down or most I mean, of, that's how I would down, have probably. it. I would have it strapped, the cash strapped to the extra chute that's like onto my leg. Exactly what they Trilling would do down, with yeah. the, the equipment that, you know, paratroopers do when they, they drop their entire load, on, like yeah. let, it, let it dangle <laughs> on, on, on their feet. So it doesn't, you know, add more weight when they hit the ground. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Yeah. And then that would also show experience with mil- military tactics, which mm-hmm. would, you know, obviously suggest that. He had been through some military training, you know? Correct. Yeah. No. And that's, that's why, like just how cool common collected. I, I, I don't know. I think there's very likely this guy worked for some branch of the military, special forces, CIA or something, man. This at guy some, was just, at some point, this guy was just way too slick to be your average civilian working at your average yeah. civilian job. But like, I won't go over everything I saw, but if you look over the FBI stuff, there's, they make a lot of assumptions to rule out people that's based on what seems to me absolute nonsense, you know, just lack of uh-huh. critical thinking skills on the parts of these detectives. They're just, they're not thinking it through, man. They're just not looking at the evidence. Maybe, maybe they just like, well, this is a hard case. I kind of want to go home and drink some beers. So we'll just, and they were this impressed guy themselves. You know, like, yeah. Maybe they're, <laughs> they're being, like, Hey, you know what? <laughs> Fuck it. Maybe they're being lazy. I don't know what the deal is, but they made some very strange assumptions that, I don't know. Like, yeah, I won't, I'll, I'll leave it at that, I guess. <laughs> Did you have any other uh, suspects you wanted to talk about, Agent Ether? We have Richard Floyd McCoy. Ah, the real McCoy. Yeah. The real yeah. McCoy. I thought we were going to get to oh, him. Oh, yeah. Flying under the name James Johnson, he buys a one-way ticket to LA, kind of copycat of D.B. Cooper, sits in the last row by the laboratory. This was in April 7th of 1972, so a bit later. 
and he successfully jumps with 500K. Nice. Yeah, so he does it. I mean, he hijacks the plane, and he does his jump, and he gets home, and he has the money, and he gets caught. Yeah, I think they caught him based on fingerprint evidence, didn't they? I don't know, but they definitely caught him. (laughs) They knew who he was. Richard McCoy has experience in the military. I mean, he was on National Guard duty flying one of the helicopters involved in the search for the hijacker. Hmm. Um, even like he was, uh, wait, where was that? Iran? He, he was looking for himself, basically, <laughs> like at one point. That's crazy. Well, he was yeah. charged with air piracy. And because it was such a problem at this time, they'd made it a capital offense. And the penalty was... The death sentence. It could be as much as the death sentence. And in Utah, execution was done by firing squad. Dang. Yeah, those were the old days. It was 45 year sentence though. That's insane. Yeah, so they they sentenced him. They found him guilty. But it's crazy because it didn't end there. I mean, he he escaped. He fashioned, he, he somehow worked his way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to gain access he into the dental office. Twice. This guy was kind of a badass. He escaped twice, not once. <laughs> he escaped but on twice. my birthday. Did he really? <laughs> yeah, nice. on August 10th, 1974. That's your birthday? Uh, August 10th, yeah. Oh, not I thought the 1974. <laughs> hey, you're older than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a surprise. That yeah. would be awesome. You got me all excited um, for a minute there. But uh, I was going to say that uh, McCoy, though, um, Supposedly, it was a tip from a motorist, but then there was another gentleman that um, you can see he has. I, I didn't really dive in more into his background, but supposedly he was one. He was uh, he knew McCoy like they were friends, and McCoy was an experienced skydiver, and you know everybody. You know he was actually pretty cool dude, and that there was conversations of what ifs. Um, like, you know, what, what would you do if you could, you know, rob, you know, rob a bank or like do this or do that and talk about how could you get cash fast? And they would talk about theoretical possibilities of like doing exactly what, you know, we witnessed at the DB Cooper incident. And that, that was when he said, when he saw that going down on the news that he called in and immediately said that he thinks it's you know, so and such. And that's when they investigated his house and found not exactly 500K, but $499,970 because he, he had to take a couple, like 20 bucks out or 20, 30 bucks out to go uh, shopping or something like that. <laughs> so th- this guy, I just wanted to mention how he broke out of prison. Uh, the first time or the second time? This This guy is like, I, they, they need to make a movie about this guy if they haven't already, man. This guy was fucking crazy. I only saw one escape here after he got caught for the hijacking, but th- this one is where he crashed a garbage truck through the main gate of the prison. No, he escaped before that. They put okay. him in the county jail while they were transferring him. Uh-huh. And they came in and they said, hey, we're looking for so-and-so. Is he here? And it wasn't him, but he said it was, and they brought him out. He was in there like the drunk tank or something. <laughs> and the other guy's like passed out, and he goes, oh, yeah, that's me. Oh, nice. And they let him go. <laughs> that's that's amazing. This, I, this is something like you'd see in a movie, right? <laughs> right, right. And the garbage truck is the perfect action scene for a movie. And the way this guy died after escaping prison is like something out of a goddamn movie 
he died in a shootout yeah. with the FBI. This guy, yeah. dude. Yeah, man. This is. I like, mean, dude. The guy was. He was working on that with one of the helicopters involved in the search for the hijacker. That's what I'm very surprised about. Is that it's some type of catch me if you can type shit, like where it was just simply. It wasn't that hard to like blend in or, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. whatever the hell it might have been. Yeah, this this guy had quite the career as a criminal. And the reason why he's a suspect is because the hijack, we know for a fact that he did a hijacking and it was very, very similar to the D.B. Cooper hijacking. So a lot of people speculate because it was such a similar method of operation that maybe that it could have been the same guy. But... Um, obviously we don't know for sure that that was the case and it appears that, uh, he sort of has an alibi, so it might not have been him, but, uh, we don't know for sure. There was some circumstantial evidence. However, there was a collect call that was placed to his house from Las Vegas. And that was before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Eve which is when the hijacking took place, the D.B. Cooper hijacking, and they found a credit slip for gas going through Las Vegas as Hmm. well. Interesting. So they questioned him about it and basically said, I don't know, I was at home helping with dinner. I have no idea about the charges. I have no idea about the collect call. And they they asked him, "Do do you drink? Do you gamble? And he's like, no, I'm Mormon. I don't. I don't do any of those things. So apparently he can't drink or gamble, but he can go hijack a plane. Well, I don't, <laughs> as far as I know, the Mormons never specifically prohibited plane hijacking, right? I don't know. And <laughs> it could be said, some people speculate that he could have boarded a plane from Vegas to Portland and then returned to Vegas when he jumped and then gone home from there. Hmm. Okay. Well, I guess the timeline does kind of line up then. It does, but he doesn't have the right colored eyes. Uh-huh. I think he had blue eyes. Hmm. And he doesn't smoke. So there was some evidence there, circumstantial, like I said. But Well, on the other hand, an incredibly clever person might adopt a certain persona. Yes. If you were going to invent a persona to be an alias so that you wouldn't be detected and you're as clever as D.B. Cooper was, you might do things like pick a drink that you don't normally drink, like bourbon, or you might smoke cigarettes when you don't normally smoke, just yeah, to kind of throw drink. authorities off. But uh, who knows? It's another one of those cases where we don't know for sure. You know, it could have been him. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Now, is this the one where he jumped out of the airplane at 16,000 feet? I think this was him. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it doesn't really matter that much, but... The point is, is that people will say that, you know, 10,000 feet makes the hijacking implausible. But this guy actually jumped out of a plane under worse conditions than D.B. Cooper and very much survived with his money to go to jail. But later on. can we make it also a point that he knew how to operate the back door the second time around? Yeah. If it was D.B.? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this guy hey, uh, Richard apparently knew how to operate the door. Yeah. Without any help or instruction. Yeah, I mean, this this guy checks a lot of boxes, and in some ways, he's more plausible than the other fella, Kenny, that we were talking about. But, I mean, obviously, it wasn't two guys. It was just one. But still, he's he's up there as far as, like, top guys that could have been it. 
One of the things against him, as I think like Ether said, is that he doesn't really match the description of D.B. Cooper all that well. But on the other hand, maybe he had a really good disguise. Maybe he had contact lenses that could have changed his eye color. Did they have those back then? I don't know. But there's any number of reasons why he could have been off as far as the description goes. We don't know if for they sure. did have ty- a type of contact uh, he could use. It would probably be, be very uncomfortable. Uh, be almost like glass like, wouldn't it? Yeah, but when the pressure was, when the cabin was depressurized before he jumped, after they'd taken off, the temperature in the cabin was below freezing. That also would have been very uncomfortable. But this fella was definitely willing to put up with some discomfort to achieve his goals. So who knows? Yeah. You know, anything's possible. But so I think, uh, are we, do we have any more major suspects that we want to talk about? Not major. And I'm not sure if I want to touch on Bobby slash yeah. Barbara Dayton. That's just a train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a cool, it's kind of creepy. Like in the HBO documentary, they, mm-hmm. they made her section kind of like, you know, a little creepy, especially when she puts on the glasses and like it's, it gets all quiet at the party and stuff like that. And they're like taking pictures of her with the glasses on. And it's supposed to like, it's very similar to the sketch hmm. and all that stuff. But yeah, no, I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> I think we should just uh, wrap her not up. With a 10 foot yeah. pole. Leave, maybe leave that one for the listeners. One more thing I wanted to talk about was the serial numbers <laughs> specifically. I think we touched on it briefly, but I was always, I hadn't really looked into this case in much depth before. And I was always of the opinion that since the serial numbers were all recorded and none of the money was ever found having been circulated, just the money they found on the shore that one time. So like $5,000 or whatever, they never actually found the money being spent or deposited to a bank or anything like that. I always figured that maybe that meant that he had died on his way down. The money was stuck somewhere in the forest and would never be found again. But when I looked into a little bit more, they, what they did was they recorded the serial numbers on like microfiche and they distributed those numbers to banks and casinos or whatever. But look at it this way. Like if you go to the casino and the casino is handling, you know, millions of dollars all the time, whatever, tons of money. Do you really think they're checking every serial number on every single bill that goes through that place? So I think it's entirely plausible that he could have laundered that money somehow and put it back into circulation. And it would have never been found because there's so much money in circulation and who's checking money. How often back then I doubt they had like machines that would just automatically scan every serial number on every dollar. Like that probably happens today, but back then you probably would have had somebody actually physically checking these dollars. And that it's just, there's no way they would have had the manpower to do that, you know? And over time, older bills are retired from circulation and new ones are printed in their place. So to me, it seems plausible that this money could have been spent or laundered and could have been removed some point from circulation and basically lost to time. Especially if it was done internationally. Especially if it was done internationally, yeah. Like in Mexico, which is where he initially indicated that he was going. Right, but knowing this guy... Probably that was a misdirection because he never had any intention of going to Mexico, especially since he jumped out of the plane like 20 minutes after it took off, you know? (laughs) So that was probably just a misdirection. But maybe he could have gone to Canada. In fact, 
there's evidence that he might have been Canadian, of all things, because there was a Canadian Naughty. comic book about a test pilot from Canada whose name was Dan Cooper. But um, maybe we won't get into that too much. It's doesn't really mean a whole lot, even though the FBI does consider it to be evidence. But, you know, what the FBI does and does not consider evidence is questionable in this case, in my opinion, anyways. So maybe it's nothing. Who knows? But, um, the oh, yeah, the, the other piece of evidence I don't think we talked about that they did find was along the flight path of the 727, they did find in the woods a placard with instructions on how to lower the aft stairs of the 727. And that is considered a real piece of evidence. But um, beyond that, there's not a trace of anything found, which uh, I don't know if it's really worth mentioning, but I kind of mentioned it at the end here because it is sort of interesting that they found that placard needle in a haystack, right? If they found that placard, you think they would have found a parachute or something, but no, they didn't. Yeah, agreed. I think that implies he survived and took it with him. Or it could have just fallen out of the airplane after he opened the door. Just no, I meant out. the parachute. Oh, yeah, Since no. Since they never found the parachute. Oh, that's, that's exactly what I think. I think that he landed, he collected the parachute and any other debris that would have come down with him and took it with him. I absolutely think that's what happened. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that he didn't make the, he did not successfully make the jump. I don't, I, I used to think that because of the serial numbers, because of a lot of other things, but haven't taken a detailed look at this case. I believe 100% that he made the jump and that he escaped with his money, except for maybe the few bundles that he might've accidentally dropped on the way down. But that, I mean, looking at the totality of everything, that's what I think. What does everybody else think? You guys think he made it? Did he die on the way down? I don't know. What do you fellas think? I my my opinion pretty much lines up pretty closely with that. I think he made it down. I think the level of planning that he put into it would would suggest that he had a plan for the ground too, and to make it down to the ground. You know, um, I think that it it is it is likely that, that there is a, a part of the uh, loot that he lost along the way, and um, maybe you know that 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 money that those kids found was part of that. Uh, to me, I, I maybe I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. For sure, but I, I think that it suggests that that money was buried after, like it maybe had washed up and it was found. He came back after and and found it and buried it to for safekeeping, what have you. That's a little, that's kind of stretching it a little bit. I realize that, but, but they also pointed out that how it was stacked was exactly how it was given, and that it that almost looked like something was being compressed it. on top of it. Like there was a lot of weight, yeah, like on on it prior. So, I mean, he could have just done it in a quick instance and then just so he can be more mobile and not lug around his 200 K. But, uh, I believe that too, that he, he survived, hit the ground, was able to make a best. That's my opinion is I I think that he made it to the ground. I think that, uh, whatever, you know, um, difficulties he encountered once he reached there, I think he was planned for, uh, and he had planned for, I mean, and um, I think the person survived, I think, you know, because the lack of evidence was found of his physical presence on the ground. And I, I do agree that I think that he cleaned up after himself once he hit, hit the ground. And um, I, I, I think that a substantial amount of the loot that was taken had been profited off of and he laundered it in the right way. Like, like Agent Anderson had said, you know, I think this guy, this guy had, had planned out quite a bit, not just the, the whole process of, 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 uh, hijacking and getting back down to the ground with the loot, 
but also what to do with it after. I mean, if you're going to get that whole, if you're going to get that loot and you're going to profit off of it, then you have to know what to do with it, right? So the level of uh, meticulous planning, like we had mentioned before, would include this, I believe. I I think uh, I would like to believe that McCoy was my Richard McCoy was, you know, because it was only four months apart. The crime when you know D I you know it was it was probably two individuals different individuals but I mean it almost seems like it, it's Richard McCoy's second attempt it, it would like what his first attempt quote unquote was or like his sixteen thousand feet it was just an adjustment from the ten thousand from before and then not needing help to operate the stairs in the back like he did the first time but now not this time like. And there was a lot of similarities with the notes that were being presented and stuff like that. And I'm not sure uh, how, um, like, how uh, much information was being divulged uh, at the time. Like, is everything that we know is what the public knew right away? Or was there kind of a late latency there? I'd like to believe he got away. And I think most of the public wants to believe that he got away with it. Like Agent Anderson said, some sort of modern Robin Hood, but he's keeping his money for himself, not giving it away to the poor. But he is robbing from the rich. You know, he's robbing from the airlines, keeping it for himself, holding some sort of grudge against the world. We don't know what. And I don't think it's any of the suspects. I think he's way too clever, and we won't, we won't ever know who he is, especially now that he would be over 90 if he was still alive. So yeah. oh, he's dead and gone for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. That's actually a good point with how meticulous he was. Probably none of the suspects are him. That's a really good point. And we've, uh, we're, we're bumping up over two hours here. So it's my probably, God, probably time to wrap it up, but we've only really scratched the surface as far as the details you can go into in this case. Like I mentioned earlier, briefly, like the way he referred to the money. This is just one example but he called it negotiable American currency. An American wouldn't say that. They would just say, give me $200,000. On the other hand, maybe he planned to say that on purpose. I don't know. But there's a lot of, there's so many details to this case that we could probably easily go on for another two hours, but I think it's about time to wrap it up. Anybody interested to know more, take a look for yourself. There's so much to this case and there's a lot of details that mean something. Like he, like for example, like I just said, negotiable, Amer- negotiable American currency. The fact that he said that means something. What does it mean? I don't know. You'll have to put it together for yourself. But it's a really interesting case, and for me, I thought it was a good case, and I wanted to do the case. But after having done the case, it's way better than I thought it was initially. So I guess that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out our Facebook group and page. Also, if you enjoyed the show, you can really help us out by giving us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep it strange. <laughs>